Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. Well, good morning, High Point. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to thank you for joining us for our online service. And I want to thank you for your continued faithfulness to your church and to our Lord. You are truly an amazing group of people. And I want you to understand that myself, the staff, our family, we're praying for you and we miss all of you. At the turn of the 20th century, there was a man named Alfred, and he was one of the preeminent scientists and entrepreneurs of his day. He made a fortune by inventing and refining, of all things, explosives, the most famous being his invention of dynamite. Alfred's intention was that these explosives would be used for construction purposes in the the helping of uh, laying foundations for building or, or highways or whatever. But soon, their value for warfare became very evident, and most of Alfred's money was made by selling his material and his devices to the military. Toward the end of his life, he began to ponder the legacy that he would leave behind. And while his inventions had been used for good, which is what he wanted, it was also true that his inventions had been used in ways that he never desired. His inventions equipped equipped armies all over the world to deliver new and improved forms of death and destruction. And this was not at all how Alfred wanted to be remembered. So he rewrote his will and he used a large portion of his fortune to establish an international award that is given each year to scientists and thinkers and leaders. He wanted to honor people who made a remarkable contribution to the betterment of humankind. Well, in case you haven't guessed it yet, this man's name was Alfred Nobel. And his famous and most highly uh, honored award is given every year to the person or the persons, and I quote, who shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between the nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the promotion of peace. We call it the Nobel Peace Prize, and it is one of the highest honors that can be bestowed upon a human being. The, the, The first Nobel Peace Prize went to a man named Jean-Henri Dunant, who helped to found the International Red Cross and the Geneva Convention. Other winners include Woodrow Wilson, who was the leading architect behind the League of Nations, the goal of which was to ensure world peace after the slaughter of millions of people in the First World War. Theodore Roosevelt received the prize for his work in helping to end the Russo-Japanese War in the early 1900s. Other winners include Mother Teresa, Albert Schweitzer, Lech Walesa, and Nelson Mandela. And if you go to the Nobel website, you will read through the names of all the winners and you, and you will see a very impressive list of people. People who use their mind and their talents and their influence to advance the cause of world peace. But you know, even after all of their award-worthy accomplishments, 
Over the past 11 decades, there is still one uh, unsettling fact that remains. We are no closer to world peace today than we were when Nobel set up this peace prize 119 years ago. The world is just as violent, it is just as volatile and frightening as ever before, if not even more so. Peace continues to be the most elusive of all human ambitions. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We are obviously continuing in our series called The Standard, which is about the greatest sermon ever preached by none other than Jesus himself. And this sermon has been called the Beatitudes. It's been called the Sermon on the Mount, and it is full of truth for followers of Christ, uh, ways that we are supposed to live. And today we are going to look at the next Beatitude, which is in chapter 5, Matthew verse 9, and this is what it reads. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Now, like all of the other Beatitudes that we have studied up to this point, the words that Jesus spoke here in verse 9 would have sounded quite radical in his day and age. As we discussed a few weeks back, um, the Jewish people were greatly struggling under the offensive domination of the Roman Empire. I'm sure the heartfelt desire of every Jew listening to Jesus on that day was to fight Rome and to not make peace with Rome. I mean, the only peace the Jews wanted to have would come at the end of a war in which the Roman Empire would have been totally decimated. This was their fondest dream, and this was their greatest hope. So as they heard Jesus making that statement that day up on that mountain, one can only imagine the kind of thoughts that were being generated in their minds. Does this guy know about all the taxes that the Romans have imposed upon us taxes that keep us on the brink of poverty? Does he know that King Herod Archelaus, that puppet ruler appointed by the Romans, slaughtered 3,000 Jews at a Passover celebration recently? Has he heard about how the Roman governor Pilate massacred Jews on the Temple Mount and desecrated the temple by mixing their blood with the sacrifices that they were offering? Then they would have gone on to think, of course he knows. Everybody knows this. How can he possibly say to us, blessed are the peacemakers? Surely we just heard some misspoken words. Surely he meant to say, blessed are the warmongers. You see, these words that Jesus spoke on that day were both radical and countercultural. And honestly, these words that, that he spoke on that day are just as radical in 2020 as they were over 2,000 years ago. I mean, certainly we are, not, we are not being dominated as a nation by the Roman Empire or any other nation for that matter. But the threat of conflict still lies around us in many different fronts. And I'm not just talking about the threat of Islamic terrorism or the ongoing saber-rattling that we hear from North Korea month after month after month, or Russian aircraft or Chinese ships that almost daily encroach into our and other countries' sovereign territory. I'm talking about the fact that, that every day, everyday people and situations try our patience. And if we're not careful, those situations can easily become volatile and we can explode into conflict, robbing us of what little peace that we enjoy in this fallen world in which we live. I mean, I want you to think about it. 
We have disagreements between family members, with our coworkers. We have disagreements with friends and neighbors. And even though it pains us to admit it, many times we have disagreements with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is very sad to say that Christians are well known for our tendency to fight among each other. And that is not at all a good testimony for the world to see. And have you noticed how whenever you find yourselves embroiled in a conflict, that your sinful human nature always tends to kick in? In these times, our, our sinful side says, don't let people run over you. you got to win this argument. you got to come out on top. If someone is nasty with you, then you get nasty right back. Don't get mad. Get even. That's the way we think. Don't make peace. Make war. And furthermore, win that stinking war. I read about an encounter on an airline in which a plus-sized woman found herself sitting on a plane when she noticed that the man sitting next to her was responding very negatively with very obvious forms of body language. He was doing this in such a way that it became obvious to her that he was not at all happy to be sitting next to a person of her size. She saw him pick up his phone and he started to text a friend and she could see that he and his friend were swapping fat jokes about her. So she got out her phone and unbeknownst to him, she began to video the text conversation going on. Three hours later, as they were about to land, she confronted him with this. He denied it all. He denied texting his friend and saying bad things about her. And that's the direction that she had hoped that it would go. So she pulled out her phone and she showed him all of his texts. Well, he apologized, saying that he was drunk at the time. But then he went on to say to her that it was wrong. He felt it was wrong for her to sit in an aisle seat near an exit area because of her size, it would block the ability for others to exit. She kept videotaping their confrontation, and lo and behold, it was featured the next day on all of the morning talk show circuit. Now, whereas I and probably you can certainly sympathize with this woman's feelings, our response shows that we are not predisposed to peace. We are predisposed to conflict. I mean, be honest, as I'm reading that story, how many of you thought, that's a great idea to video his texting. What a way to sock it to that rude and, 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 and uncaring man. I need to remember that tactic. I'm going to start using my smartphone in that way. The fact that we admire not only this, this poor girl's smarts, but her need to respond to a man's rude behavior over three hours after it actually happened really does indicate our bend towards conflict. Thanks to uh, this aspect of our sinful nature, we like to fight and we like to win. Maybe it's one of the ways that we deal with being fallen. If we can win a fight, if we can judge someone else wrongly, then we end up making ourselves feel a little bit better about ourselves. John Burke, a pastor in Austin, Texas, writes this. He says, I watch the news and condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car and I drive and I find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And then I throw a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for good measure. 
At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because, look, people, it says ten items or less, and I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage checker, what is she wearing anyway, focus on her work so we can get out of here? Judging is our favorite pastime. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. His point is that we like to be right, don't we? We like to win. And sadly, this tendency that we have to judge and to embrace conflict is not at all new. It began when Adam and Eve began to blame each other and even blame God when they broke His one law that He commanded them not to break. And it continued with the conflict between Cain and Abel, the result of which the world had its first murder. The fact is that mankind has been embroiled in one conflict or another ever since. The Society of International Law in London reports that during the last four millennia, there have been only 268 years of peace. That's less than 7% of the time. In the last two millennia alone, there have been over 15,000 known wars. At the same time period, over 8,000 peace treaties have been made and then systematically broken. And do you even know the motto the United Nations adopted at its founding? Here it is. To have succeeding generations free from the scourge of war. Truthfully, this was a United Nations pipe dream because since its founding in 1945, there has not been one single day of peace on this war-torn earth that we live. No generation has been free from the scourge of war. This caused one insightful cynic to say this, peace is that glorious moment in history when everyone stops to reload. In fact, probably the only time that human beings would join together and fight for something together in a unified state would probably be like in the movies if aliens were to come and attack our planet. Then and only then might we rally together for one great cause. You see, conflict is all around us. And the fact is the way we respond to it most of the time only makes matters worse. And so I want to review those ways with you this morning, and I think there are basically three of them. First, there are those people who are peace breakers. These are the guys and gals who seem to go out of their way to break down relationships. They love to cause trouble. They love to cause division because they tend to be opinionated and judgmental. And did I mention they, they know it all? They are deliberately confrontational people who like to micromanage everyone and everything because their way is always the right way. Their spiritual gift is not just to disagree, but to publicly let everybody know about their disagreement. And their main tool is their tongue. They use that slippery appendage to gossip and to slander on the phone or in conversations. Some even do it in the hallways of their church. Another favorite weapon that they use is carefully crafted text messages or emails or, or other social media tools to tear down and to create division. 
And I know this may offend some of you peacebreakers that might be listening to me this morning, but the fact is that peacebreakers are pawns of our enemy, Satan. If you are a peacebreaker, you are someone that Satan moves around because he is attempting to destroy the good things that God is doing. And unfortunately, I've known many peacebreakers in my life. I've seen marriages and families and even entire churches split by this kind of an individual. Do you know any peacebreakers at this moment? Well, the Bible has strong words to address this shortcoming. First, let me read you a verse that attacks the peacebreaker's favorite weapon. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, the unwholesome talk that it's mentioning here is not necessarily referring to curse words, but rather words that tear down peace and people rather than building both of them up. Listen to these words where the Apostle Paul tells us how to deal with peacebreakers in Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And before any of us start pointing our fingers of blame across to anybody else, each of us needs to examine our own hearts. And furthermore, we need to examine our own tongues. Because if the truth were told, I'm sure that we would all have to admit that there were times where every one of us has been a peace breaker. Because as I alluded to earlier, our bent, our selfish uh, tendency is to break peace rather than make peace. We would rather be right. We would rather win than make peace, even if that means hurting other people in the process. There was a very intriguing question that was posed on a nationally published magazine many years ago, and it asked this question. If you could push a button and thereby eliminate any person with no repercussions to yourself, would you do it? 60% of the people responded by saying yes. One man posted an even better follow-up question. If such a device were invented, would anyone live to tell about it? So have you been pushing any buttons lately? Are you a peace breaker? Do you bring people together or do you pull them apart? Do you help and try to improve things that you're critical of? Or do you just, are you just full of complaints and, and criticism? Remember, it is always easier to, to create conflict and discouragement than it is to promote peace, than it is to build other people up. Well, a second response to conflict is seen in people who are what you would call peace fakers. I'm referring to individuals who prefer peace over the truth. Peace fakers foolishly and ignorantly uh, see peace as simply the absence of any kind of an argument or discord or face-to-face -face conflict. In fact, they will go to any length 
to avoid any kind of a conflict, any kind of a confrontation, or any kind of unrest. And in doing so, they settle for a counterfeit peace that is based on simply avoiding the real issues at hand. Whereas peacebreakers love to use their tongues, peacefakers love to make truces. But what you've got to understand is that truce-making is not what Jesus has called us to do in this beatitude. Because at a, a truce is an end of fighting that is imposed from the outside. And that's not peace. I think a good way to put it would be this way. You can't keep peace that isn't there in the first place. You can't sweep disagreements under a relational rug and call that peace. A genuine peacemaker is much more than a maker of truces. A peacemaker is someone who, number one, actually discovers the origin of the conflict, and number two, finds a way to resolve it and help the parties to restore a proper relationship once again. A peacemaker is one who strives to actually make or construct peace. You see, a, a, a truce just means you stop shooting. For a while. That's not peace. Real peace comes when the truth is known and when you settle the issue and the parties involved embrace each other. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do here. Listen, there will be times when you will make an effort to bring peace. You will apologize for your part of a matter and ask for forgiveness, but there will be no response. There will be no reciprocation. Well, can I just say this to you? Even though the other side may not have responded to you, it doesn't mean you've done wrong. You've done what is right. Because as the Scriptures say in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, you, me, live peaceably with all men. Always do your part. Take the high road. If those that you have conflict with won't accept your apology and won't extend forgiveness back, the conflict now becomes solely theirs. And one of the reasons could be is because they're a peace faker. They think that if they simply forget about the problem or the controversy or the broken relationship, that, that everything will just go away. But here's the deal. If you have had a disagreement with a spouse or a child or a friend or a coworker or a family member or a church member, and you've just agreed to stop fighting, well, don't congratulate yourself on your accomplishment. All you have made is a truce. You haven't obeyed our Lord's command because you haven't fought to make peace. Peace-faking people think that, that, that they are being noble. When in reality, they're making a bad choice because when, when the situation is left ignored, whatever has caused that tension within that relationship will inevitably surface again. Without resolution, there is no peace. There cannot be any peace, and there is no relationship. Phil Morgan writes, If things are not resolved, then that peace you've been trying so very hard to maintain by avoiding the issues will get harder and harder to keep. Eventually, there will come a total breakdown in the relationship. Relationships can die while everything on the surface looks peaceful. The truth is that peace at any price is a form of deception that the father of all lies absolutely loves. Satan is thrilled whenever in the name of peace we maintain the status quo and never really honestly relate to one another. 
Ephesians 4.25 challenges the peacemakers among us when it says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. So in review, number one, there are peace breakers. Number two, there are peace fakers. And then thirdly, you will find peacemakers. They respond to conflict and tension in that they attempt to make peace. These people's actions are truly Christ-like because peace must be actively and intentionally made. It never happens by chance. You see, when left to ourselves, as I said earlier, we tend to lean towards divisiveness. So peacemakers literally go against the flow of this world. They do what it takes to establish and to maintain real peace. Warren Wiersbe writes, Hatred looks for a victim, while love seeks a victory. The man of war throws stones, and the peacemaker builds a bridge out of those stones. And please listen to my next statement, because it's very important. Peacemaking requires divine power. Real peace, lasting peace, isn't possible without God's help. I mean, you can't make what you don't have. You can't spread peace if you are at war inside yourself. And the only way to have inner peace is to make your peace with God through Jesus Christ. You see, our God is the source of all genuine and lasting peace. He tells us repeatedly in the written word that He is a peace-loving peacemaking God. And I don't know about you, but I see this particular aspect or facet of God's character whenever I read the scriptures. I mean, from the beginning, when we look at the story of how Adam and Eve fell into sin and their relationship with God was fractured, from that moment on, the Bible is the historical record of God reaching out to man and wooing him back to him into fellowship with him once again. And it was all climaxed when God sent his son Jesus to come and die for our sin. God's strategy, God's plan has always been to bring about a just and a lasting peace between rebellious man and himself and also between man versus man. In the first chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul talks about this when he says that due to our sin, we were once alienated from God. Our sinful nature and our sinful actions Uh, made us enemies with the holy God. But God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And in doing so, he reconciled all things to himself. In dying on that Roman cross, Jesus paid for our offenses so that we could come home to God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact is, we must all experience the peace of God through faith in Jesus in order to become more Christ-like. It's only when the Prince of Peace lives inside of us that we have the power to counteract our sinful tendency toward conflict and then truly become the peacemakers that Jesus wants us to become. Haddon Robinson writes this, No peace will exist between nations until peace reigns in each country. And no country will have peace until peace dwells with the people. And no people will have peace 
until they surrender to the Prince of Peace. Philip Keller, himself a shepherd and an author of a book titled A Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm, writes this. He said, hundreds of times, I have watched an old, austere ewe walk up to a younger one, which might have been feeding contentedly or resting quietly in some sheltered spot. She would arch her neck, tilt her head, dilate her eyes, and approach the other with a stiff-legged gait. All of this was saying in unmistakable terms, move over, out of my way, give ground or else. And if the other you did not immediately leap to her feet in self-defense, she would be butted unmercifully. Or if she did rise to accept the challenge, one or two strong bumps would soon send her scurrying for safety. But one point that always interested me very much was that whenever I came into view and my presence attracted their attention, the sheep quickly forgot their foolish rivalries and they stopped their fighting. The shepherd's presence made all the difference in their behavior. Well, in the very same way, the shepherd's presence in our life is what enables us to make peace. Only those who have first tasted peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ, who have died to self and who have allowed Jesus to live through them, can be true peacemakers. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy on our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. As C.S. Lewis so, so creatively puts it, we can't be peacemakers in our own strength. So how do we go about obeying this command? And let me remind you, that's what this is. Each of these Beatitudes, Jesus is listing the attitudes that any Christ follower must embrace if we are to become more like Him. And that should be the goal of every believer in Christ. So how do we embrace it? Well, let me just say that I, I detest easy formulas, probably just as much as you do. But I want to answer that question by offering five things to remember that will help you obey Jesus' command to be a peacemaker. And I borrowed this from Pastor Rick Warren, who has taken the word peace and he's made it into an acronym. In it, he reminds us of, of five biblical steps that we need to take in an effort to restore fractured relationships. Five aspects of making peace. Here's the first letter of the acronym, P. When you find yourself at enmity with somebody else, first ask for God's help and then P, plan a peace conference. In Matthew 5, 23, 24, Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. In other words, our Lord says, don't wait for the other person to make the first move. You be the one that takes the initiative. 
In Matthew chapter 18, he makes it very clear again that in times of conflict, it doesn't matter if you're the offended or the offender, you make the first move. Jesus says, go to that person because that's the most satisfying solution will come from a face-to-face encounter with that person when you discuss your differences. But if that is not possible, or excuse me, try to schedule a meeting with them, and if that is not possible, then write a letter. Not a letter that is full of grievances, but just a letter asking for their forgiveness for whatever part you played in the breakdown of that relationship. I've had to do this several times in my life, and only once did the other person not respond to my reaching out to them. And if that happens, again, I want to remind you that you've done what's right. You have made an attempt to bring peace. You've done what the Scriptures have instructed you to do. The other person will now have to solely carry that load. And hopefully, one day they will come to grips with making peace with you. But remember, peace doesn't just happen. Peace needs to be made. And remember, if conflict is ignored, things will only get worse. Here's the second letter of that acronym for the word peace. The letter E. Empathize with the feelings of others. Answer this question. When I am upset, who am I most likely thinking about? Well, I'll tell you who you're thinking about. You're thinking about me, my feelings, my hurts, my rights. Well, the Apostle Paul believes that this is backwards thinking. Because in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he writes this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, Paul is not saying here that your interests are irrelevant or unimportant. He's saying here, have an equal concern for the feelings and the needs of others as much as you are your own. Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has this principle where he says, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And that's good advice. Because in order for for peace to happen, we have to try to see the situation from the other side's perspective. Here's the third letter of that acronym, PEACE. It's the letter A. Attack the problem and not the person. Friends, we can't focus on on fixing the problem while at the same time fixing blame on someone else. I mean, if you go into a peace conference saying, I'm really going to give that person a piece of my mind. I'm going to punish them for what they said said or did to me. You're going to be wasting your time. You are going to be creating more harm than good. Remember in Proverbs 5, 1, Solomon said, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Here's a greater translation of that. Engage your mind before you engage your mouth. That's not always easy to do because we're impulsive people. Something comes into our mind, we spew it out. It is always best to think before you speak. So calmly deal with the issues. Here's the fourth letter in that acronym for the word peace. It's the letter C. Cooperate as much as possible. In other words, be a bridge builder and not a bridge burner. Romans 12, 18, and I touched on this earlier. Paul again says, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Implied in that passage is the reality that you won't always be able to resolve conflicts with other people. 
Some people thrive on arguments. Some thrive on being quarrelsome, while others like to walk around wounded and with a chip on their shoulder. They, they very much have embraced a victim mentality. They've done it their entire life. Other people refuse to, to settle for a solution that everyone can be happy with. They have to win, and you have to lose, even if it means compromising the truth. The story of your encounter together will be embellished. Statements will be added. More accusations will be made that have absolutely no merit. And literally what happens is paranoia sets in. But Paul says, you be more mature than that. You be the one that holds out the olive branch. Don't sacrifice the truth, but cooperate as much as possible in an attempt to make peace. Well, here's the fifth letter for that acronym piece, the letter E. Emphasize reconciliation, not retaliation. To reconcile means making an effort to repair and reestablish a broken relationship. To retaliate means to get even and to hurt back. Jesus elaborates on this further down in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 41. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You know, as we spoke earlier about the Nobel Peace Prize, the youngest person to ever win that award was the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and from my personal opinion, I think he greatly deserved that award because he was someone who clearly embraced this beatitude. During the civil rights movements in the 1960s, when marchers would put their bodies on the line against sheriffs with nightsticks and fire hoses and, and snarling German shepherds, King never waved from his commitment of bringing about change through nonviolent confrontation. He did not believe in retaliation. Even when riots broke out in major cities like Los Angeles and Detroit and Chicago and Harlem, King traveled from city to city to try to cool tempers. He would constantly remind demonstrators that nothing good could possibly come from violence. Against all odds, against all human instincts of self-preservation, Martin Luther King stayed true to this principle of peacemaking. Well, where do you think he learned that? Where did he get the power to restrain himself? Because if you'll read, some pretty horrible things were done to him. It came from his relationship with Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, my Savior and my Lord, who it says in Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It goes down in verse 7 to say, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So when we learn to practice these five steps, when we learn to be peacemakers, Jesus, in this scripture reference today, promises us a wonderful thing. 
we will be known as sons and daughters of the Most High God. When we help bring people together who have been estranged, when we make peace between men, and especially when we make peace between men and God by leading them to Jesus, that is the most Christ-like thing a person could ever do. And it's another thing that clearly marks us as God's children. So let me ask you this morning, how are your relationships with other people at this moment? As we've studied this verse on peacekeeping, has the Holy Spirit been nudging your spirit about a rupture in a relationship that He's brought to your remembrance once again? Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with a family member. Maybe your children. Maybe a work associate, a neighbor. Maybe it's someone at your church. How much sleep have you lost because you couldn't get it off your mind? How much time have you wasted stewing over it? Are you running from something that needs to be settled? Or are you just hoping that it's just going to disappear and again get swept under the rug? Is there a problem in any personal relationship that could not be solved by allowing the Prince of Peace in you to prevail? Well, if so, I'm going to pray in a moment. And when I pray, you can pray too by asking God in, by bringing peace into the relationship that you're praying about giving you insight, to give you empathy and the courage to extend that olive branch out to them. But before we do, I want you to hear the words of a famous prayer written by St. Francis of Assisi. It's words, I think, that will greatly help you in your own prayer. He prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these beatitudes. They are hard. They go against our human nature. And yet, Father, we know that with the Spirit of God indwelling us, we can do all things through Christ. You give us the capacity and the ability to do it. So I pray, God, that you would give us the desire to want to be peacemakers. That as followers of Jesus Christ, it should be our daily goal to not have conflict with others, but to have peace. And I pray that anybody who is listening to this sermon today who does not know you, they obviously can't have the Spirit of God living in them, until which time they make a commitment to Christ. So today, Father, if anybody does not know you, I pray that they would just pray a simple prayer of forgiveness, that they believe in you, Jesus, that you came to this earth, you died on the cross for them, you, your shed blood atoned for their sin, that they would ask for forgiveness for that sin, they would ask that you would bring them new life, that you will forgive them, and that they will start a life living to please you and not to please their flesh. And once they do that, God, your spirit will indwell them and it will strengthen them. And for those here today or those who are listening today, 
who already know you, we know that the Spirit of God indwells us. And yet, God, you speak to us, and sometimes we ignore you. You convict us, and sometimes we pass the other side of the road because we don't want to deal with the things that you're convicting us of. So I pray in the name of Jesus that you would reveal these broken relationships, bring it to the forefront again, so much to the point that we have to talk, we have to act, and that we act on this peace plan and we reach out with an olive branch and we bring healing to a broken relationship, that we will be peacemakers and that we will be known as sons and daughters of God. So Father, would you strengthen us? Would you give us the ability to do what you've asked us to do? Would you give us the ability to to serve you, and to please you in all of our social interactions, that it would be uplifting, it would be positive, it would encourage, and it would not tear down. That we would be purveyors of your love and your grace and your mercy in all things. And I ask that you'll strengthen us in this part of our life as we try to fulfill this beatitude daily. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.